Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. Glenn and Bessie Hyde were newlyweds. They met while traveling on a passenger ship to Los Angeles in 1927, and by the following year, they were married. It's often pointed out that the exact date of their marriage was April 12, 1928, the 16th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, and only one day after Bessie's divorce from her first husband was finalized. And whereas neither one of these events likely has any direct bearing on what happened to the couple, they still stand as a sort of dark omen of things to come. Glenn was a farmer by trade, but he also had a fascination with the water. He had a reputation as an expert boat builder, and he had a fair amount of rafting experience under his belt, traversing both the Salmon and Snake Rivers in his home state of Idaho a couple years earlier. Bessie was a rafting novice, but Glenn still convinced her to join him on an epic honeymoon journey down the Green and Colorado Rivers, through the Grand Canyon, on a 20-foot-long wooden scow he built himself. To Glenn, this was going to be more than just a honeymoon jaunt. He had big plans to set a couple of new world records along the way, both a speed record for fastest trip through the Grand Canyon and another for making Bessie the first woman in history to ever run the canyon. Bessie kept a detailed journal, and it's through this record that we have a decent idea of how things went, at least up to a point. According to Bessie's notes, the couple were ahead of schedule and making great progress on their journey. They stopped for supplies on November 16th along the Bright Angel Trail, where they met a pair of brothers named Ellsworth and Emery Kolb, the Kolb brothers were renowned photographers who operated a cliffside studio. Glenn and Bessie asked the brothers if they would take their picture, and they would return to retrieve it once their trip was done. Emery Kolb would later remark that Bessie looked nervous after Glenn casually mentioned that they didn't have any life preservers with them on the boat. As the couple were preparing to depart, they ran into Emery Kolb's daughter Emily, Bessie reportedly complimented the girl on how nicely dressed she was, adding offhandedly, I wonder if I shall ever wear pretty shoes again. It's not known for certain whether the Kolbs were the last to see Glenn and Bessie Hyde alive. Some historians have said that the last person to see them was a man named Adolf Sutro, who accompanied the couple back to the canyon and even took a few photos of them and rode with them a short distance in their boat. 
What is known for certain is that by early December, Glenn and Bessie had not been seen or heard from again. Emery Kolb initiated a search of the area that included an aerial search with a small plane that zipped through the inner gorge of the canyon. It was the pilot who would eventually find the Hyde's boat caught in the rocks along the river. The couple was nowhere to be found. Inside the boat, they discovered all the couple's supplies securely packed away. Everything, including their food, books, and clothing, were all stowed in place. A camera was found on the boat containing one final photo that had been taken near River Mile 165 on or around November 27th. To this day, no one knows what happened to Glenn and Bessie Hyde, although their legend endures, largely because of their romantic backstory, which remains tied to the Grand Canyon as the story of the Lost Honeymooners. The Grand Canyon is just one of the 450 natural, historical, and recreational areas that's part of the National Park Service. Back in 1872, a number of naturalists and outdoorsmen managed to catch the ear of both Congress and President Ulysses S. Grant, and they successfully lobbied them to designate Yellowstone to be the United States' first national park. The idea that certain pristine parts of America's wilderness needed to be preserved to prevent them from being destroyed by the rapid expansion of the railroad system and urban construction would be further expanded over the coming decades. And on August 25, 1916, President Woodrow Wilson created the National Park Service. It's believed that on average, an estimated 275 million people visit the national parks each year. What is less known is that much like the Hides, a startling number of people who visit the parks are never seen again. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm so mysterious the last time I went to the woods, Bigfoot took pictures of me. And this is The Conspirators. David Politis is a writer from California who was doing some research in a national park when he was approached by an off-duty park ranger who told him he really ought to look into the strange number of mysterious disappearances that had occurred in the parks. But when Politis approached the National Park Service trying to get a list of people who had vanished, he was repeatedly stonewalled or told outright that no such list existed. To Politis, a former police officer, he thought this was completely absurd since he knew he could walk in any police department in America and request a list of the number of missing persons cases in the area. It's also hard to believe considering most national parks track the number of wolves or bears in the area at any time, yet their claim that no such list of people who disappeared exists is either false or evidence of major ineptitude. When Politis pressed further and tried to get a complete list of missing people in the national parks, he was eventually told the government would charge him $34,000 just to compile the list for Yosemite alone, and $1.4 million for the entire country. It was Politis's repeated frustration with being unable to easily access this information that would cause him back in 2001 to start what he calls the Can-Am Missing Project, during which he has independently cataloged about 1,600 unexplained missing persons cases in a series of books he calls The Missing 411. Okay, so let's get some things out in the open right away. 
David Pleitas' work has been called into question by a number of skeptics. It's often pointed out that prior to writing the missing 411 books, David Pilatus previously wrote two books on Bigfoot, which instantly seems to discredit him in some people's eyes. But Pilatus, to his credit, has gone out of his way to not blame Bigfoot or anything else for all the strange disappearances. What he does is catalog these disappearances and tries to point out many of the similarities between these cases. Clusters, he calls them. Although many of these similarities he points out are one of the ways he sometimes gets criticized, and rightly so, I think, to some degree. These similarities range anywhere from downright creepy to the outright silly. At least some of the time it seems that Politis has made connections between some of these cases that are more likely simple coincidence. Human brains are hardwired to look for patterns in things. The reason why we see faces and shadows on Mars, or Jesus' face and scorch marks on tortillas, is something called pareidolia, where our brains try to reconcile random shapes into something familiar. In the case of the missing 411, Politis draws correlations in all sorts of things. He points out that many of the victims disappear within minutes of being last seen, that many of them disappear near water, or that often when their clothes are found, they are found neatly arranged. Other similarities Politis cites are things like the number of people who disappeared while out picking berries, or having three letters in their names, or names that all start with the letter A. Okay, even I have a hard time seeing how those last few things could be anything other than coincidence. But just because some of the things he cites are most likely simple coincidence, I don't think that means we can simply discount David Politis's work out of hand, which is what some skeptics have gone and done. Yes, it's true. People do vanish in the woods for all sorts of reasons. People get lost and accidents happen. And when you're all alone in the wilderness, even simple accidents can have deadly consequences. But some skeptics have gone ahead and dismissed all these disappearances as nothing unusual. And I think that's a huge mistake. In the case of Glenn and Bessie Hyde, some amateur investigators have come up with some pretty down-to-earth theories about what happened to the couple. The simplest explanation is that either Glenn or Bessie fell overboard when their boat ran into some rough water, and that the other one went in after them and drowned. But that still doesn't explain why neither one of their bodies was ever found. Some people have suggested that Glenn may have been an abusive husband, and Bessie finally grew fed up with his behavior and murdered him, then went off to start a new life somewhere. But Glenn's friends and family members strongly deny this and instead argued that Glenn dearly loved Bessie and wouldn't harm a hair in her head. Now, in fact, there was a woman named Georgie Clark who gained notoriety for her rafting adventures in the Grand Canyon that many people speculated might have been Bessie Hyde. When this woman died in 1992, people went digging through her personal effects and discovered several curious things. According to the woman's birth certificate, it turned out her real name wasn't Georgie Clark at all but rather, Bessie de Ross. Further suspicion was raised when they also found Glenn and Bessie Hyde's marriage certificate in her home, along with a pistol. Despite all that, there is still no concrete evidence that Georgie Clark really was Bessie Hyde, or that she murdered her husband. In 1971, a tour guide taking people through the Grand Canyon was startled when an elderly woman along on the tour told him she was Bessie Hyde. 
although the same woman had a habit of telling tall tales and most people discount her story. Various skeletons have been found in the area over the years, including one that was buried not far from the Kolb brothers' home. But none of them were ever identified as being that of Glenn or Bessie Hyde either. Whether Glenn and Bessie Hyde fell prey to a tragic accident or to cold-blooded murder, those are both still fairly plausible explanations for their unexplained disappearance. But such straightforward explanations aren't quite so easy to come by in some of the stories of the people who vanished in the national parks. It's easy for some skeptics to discount out of hand the many missing persons cases Politis has documented as nothing unusual. But when you start to look deeper, and hear the details of some of the individual stories, you'll realize there are no easy answers to be found. In the summer of 1938, four-year-old Alfred Bielharts was on a camping and fishing trip with his family at Colorado's Rocky Mountain National Park. As Alfred and his parents were hiking along a river, the little boy suddenly vanished without explanation. Now, the obvious explanation is that Alfred fell in the river and got swept away. But the boy's parents swore they were nowhere near the water at the time he disappeared. Nonetheless, the authorities still blocked off the river so that the boy's body couldn't float too far away. A six-mile stretch of river was dredged and searched for five days, but no trace of the boy was ever found. Strangely, when bloodhounds were brought in to look for Alfred, they led the authorities not toward the river where they expected, but rather, they led them to around 500 feet uphill from where the parents were when he disappeared. Doubly strange was the fact that these bloodhounds led them all the way to a fork in the trail, before simply lying down and refusing to go any further. Keep in mind the dog's behavior is something else David Politis has cited as occurring in many of the missing 411 cases he has written about. If all that wasn't weird enough, sometime later, a report came in from some hikers who were out on the Old Fall River Road about six miles away, at an elevation about 3,000 feet higher than where the search was taking place. At the time, the couple had no idea that there was a missing boy in the area. Yet they swore they saw a little boy sitting atop a high ridge in an area ominously called the Devil's Nest, near the top of Mount Chaplin. At the time, the hikers were baffled why such a small boy would be out there in the wilderness all alone, or how he could have managed to have climbed such a high ridge by himself. Unless he wasn't by himself, that is. According to the hikers, the little boy was sitting forlornly on the edge of the cliff, when suddenly someone or something, jerked him backwards out of sight. When the hikers returned home and read the news about Alfred Bielharts, they immediately alerted the authorities to what they had seen. The searchers couldn't believe a four-year-old boy could have possibly traveled so far or so high. Yet they still made the difficult climb up the devil's nest, but no sign of Alfred was ever found. Alfred Bielhart's story is eerily similar to that of 12-year-old Kenny Miller, who went missing in Yosemite National Park in 1992. Kenny was developmentally challenged, and he reportedly had the mental capacity of a four-year-old, which also happens to be one of the other correlations that David Politis has reported in his books about some of the victims. In the case of Kenny Miller, the boy's parents claimed they last saw him throwing pebbles in a creek in an area called Mice Meadows. The Millers claimed that Kenny was only out of their sight for a few minutes when he abruptly vanished. 
Once again, the obvious explanation is the boy went into the water and got swept away. Although once again, the obvious explanation isn't what happened. An intensive search was unable to find any trace of the boy. About a month later, some hikers discovered Kenny's body among some treacherous rocky brush in an area west of Mice Meadows and approximately 1,500 feet higher than the place where he'd gone missing. No one knows how the boy could have gotten there. And although his official cause of death was listed as exposure, it's unclear what really happened to him. Many such cases exist of children who mysteriously vanish in national parks then reappear in seemingly impossible areas. One story tells of a two-year-old boy who went missing near the Umatilla National Forest in Oregon, only to be rediscovered 19 hours later roughly 12 miles away, having somehow traveled at night through rough mountainous terrain and crossing at least one barbed wire fence on a trek that would have been difficult for even the most seasoned hikers, much less a two-year-old. Another story tells of a seven-year-old boy who disappeared from right in front of his home in Arizona, who reappeared two days later out in the desert 20 miles away from home. Both bloodhounds and an aerial search had been unable to find the boy. The boy had no memory of how he had gotten so far from home. Strangely, he also showed no sign of dehydration or exposure, despite having been gone for two days. In 1868, a three-year-old girl disappeared from the lumber camp where she lived with her father in northern Michigan. A massive search party began looking for the girl, but wouldn't find her until the next day miles away from camp. Searchers caught a glimpse of a dark shape running away from the area. When questioned, all the little girl could tell them was a creature she called Mr. Wolf had taken her. Then it ate her hat and took her shoes. Strangely, that little girl's story isn't the only one like it. In July 1955, two-year-old Ida Mae Curtis went missing from a lumber camp in Montana's Kootenall National Forest. The girl wouldn't be found until two days later, and when they did, they only had more questions than answers. You see, Ida Mae was discovered only 300 yards away from the camp, in an area that had already been thoroughly searched by many of the 350 people who had been out looking for her. She was sitting in a crude lean-to shelter, and she appeared to be in good health. All she could tell her parents was that she had been fed and cared for by a large bear. Sadly, not all the cases of missing children have such happy endings. In October 1999, three-year-old Jarrett Adadero was staying with his father at a Christian retreat lodge near Poudre Canyon, Colorado. The little boy went out on a hike with 12 members of the Christian group, when somehow Jared managed to get separated from them. Some fishermen would later report that they encountered the little boy who came up to them and asked them if they'd seen any bears in the area. It was the last time anyone reported seeing Jared Adadero alive. Both bloodhounds and aircraft were brought in to search for the little boy, but when no trace of him was found, it was widely believed he had fallen into the river and drowned. Only that's not what happened. Four years later, Jared's body was found in an impossible place. His skeletal remains were discovered in a remote and largely inaccessible area up a steep 500-foot incline. Some searchers suggested that a mountain lion must have dragged the boy off, pointing to a series of odd scratches that were found on his skull. 
Yet big cat experts point out that a mountain lion would have shredded the boy's clothes in order to get at the soft portions of his body. But there was no such damage to his sweater or any other such injuries to his remains. Other odd details about the scene that don't seem consistent with a mountain lion attack were that the boy's clothing were turned inside out, and that a single tooth from his mouth was found placed upon a nearby log. Something else strange about Jared's clothes. Despite being exposed to the elements for four years, they were surprisingly brightly colored and new looking. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jared Adadero isn't the only mysterious disappearance of a child that's been attributed to a mountain lion despite evidence to the contrary. In July of 2004, a nine-year-old boy named David Gonzalez was camping with his family near Big Bear Lake in Northern California. At one point, David asked his mother to borrow the car keys so that he could retrieve a box of cookies. David's mother gave him the keys and watched him walk toward the car, which was only 50 yards away. The mother claimed she only turned away for a moment, but when she looked back, David was gone. They later found the box of cookies still in the car, which indicates whatever happened to the boy happened before he got there. David's mother later recalled hearing a car speeding away from the area shortly after he disappeared, but there was no evidence of a kidnapping. No blood was found, nor any signs of a struggle. The only clue to the boy's disappearance comes from some witnesses who claim to have seen a young boy walking along a road near the campsite not long after David disappeared. One year later, some hikers discovered the decomposed remains of a body that were believed to be David, just a mile away from the campsite. Authorities believe that a mountain lion dragging David away is the most likely scenario. Yet they remain unable to explain a few things. Like why David wouldn't have screamed for help. Nor why there were no signs of blood or a struggle. Nor how the body got into an area that had already been searched thoroughly before. One of the strangest disappearances of a child in the national parks ever documented has to be that of six-year-old Dennis Martin who vanished on June 14, 1969 from the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The boy and his family were out on an annual hiking trip when they stopped in a grassy highland meadow along the Appalachian Trail. As the adults sat out in the grass, Dennis, his brother, and two other boys who were along on the trip decided they were going to play a prank on their parents. All the boys were going to split up and head into the woods, then simultaneously jump out from different directions to startle the adults. Three of the boys went in one direction, while Dennis went in another. Dennis was last seen running behind some bushes. When the other boys emerged from their hiding spots, Dennis wasn't there anymore. The adults all spread out looking for Dennis, but no sign of the boy was found. They notified the park rangers, and a search was begun that was soon hampered by heavy rainfall that moved into the area. Sometime later, another family who had been hiking about six miles away from where Dennis disappeared claimed to have heard a child scream. Their son saw some movement in the brush that he first thought to be a bear. 
but then decided was a very tall man who apparently had something slung over his shoulder. Within days, the search efforts for Dennis Martin had grown to hundreds of people scouring the area, including park rangers, bloodhounds, volunteers, the FBI, the National Guard, and even a squad of Green Berets. The fact that national authorities such as the FBI and the Green Berets were involved in the search has struck some people as particularly unusual. In fact, although it may have no relation at all to this case, the lead FBI investigator, Agent Jim Reich, would later commit suicide for unknown reasons. And the Green Berets? The reason they got involved in the search is curious as well. Because according to some reports, they were already in the woods even before Dennis Martin disappeared, although no one has ever explained what they were doing there in the first place. Mind you, it's not only children who have disappeared in the national parks. There have been plenty of full-grown adults as well, and many of those stories are equally strange. One of the great wonders of the national park system is Crater Lake in southwest Oregon. It's a vast round disk of impossibly blue water that's formed in the crater of a long dormant volcano named Mount Mazama. There was a time when people believed that the lake was bottomless, although it's actually been measured to be about 1,943 feet deep, making it the deepest lake in the United States. It's an area that has more than its fair share of spooky legends around it. This includes its own lake monster, several UFO sightings, and multiple Bigfoot sightings, including two reported Sasquatch deaths, once by someone who claims to have run the creature down with his car, another that allegedly got run over by a train. The Klamath Indians who used to live in the area worshipped the lake because they believed it to be the crossroads to the afterlife, and that the lake had been formed after a mighty battle between the spirit of above, called the Skell, and their spirit of the underworld, the Lao. According to Klamath legend, to stare at that magnificent blue water of the lake was to invite death and lasting sorrow. The Modoc people who had lived on the outskirts of the mountains, even before the volcanic activity that really formed the lake, had a more direct fear of the place. It was an evil place, they said. An evil place where people disappeared. Charles Chuck McCuller was a 19-year-old photographer from Virginia who in 1974 set out on a cross-country trip to see America. In late January of 1975, Chuck was staying with a friend in Oregon when he headed out on a short hitchhiking trip to Crater Lake National Park to take some winter photos. He had been planning on hiking along the lake's north road, even though during the previous two weeks the lake had seen five feet of fresh snow. Skiers were complaining there were areas where they were sinking up to their waists in the powdery snow. When John never returned from his trip, a massive air and land search was organized, although no sign of the man was found. Upon hearing about Chuck's disappearance, the young man's father rushed to Oregon and remained living there all the way through the following summer looking for his son to no avail. About a year later, on October 13, 1976, a couple hikers from Texas took a wrong turn and ended up in a remote canyon along a little-used trail when they stumbled across Chuck's torn backpack. The hikers informed the park rangers, and by the next day, searchers found the remains of Chuck McCuller. It's what they found of Chuck that's particularly disturbing. 
You see, his feet bones were found still planted in his socks. His jeans were unbuttoned, but his skeleton stopped at his broken shin bones, which were standing straight up. The crown of his skull was found about 12 feet away, but the rest of Chuck, including his shirt and camera equipment, were just gone. It was as if a huge part of him had just melted away. Now, it's possible that animals scavenged much of Chuck's body and dragged it away. But that still doesn't explain how he got there in the first place. More than 12 miles away from where he was last seen, somehow getting there through what would have been five feet of fresh snow. We ask the question how over and over again in many of these cases. But even more importantly, I think, is the question, why? Why did any of these things happen? There just doesn't seem to be any common reason for these disappearances to occur. People have come up with all sorts of explanations, from the mundane to the outright nutty. Serial killers, giant prehistoric birds, interdimensional portals, Bigfoot, satanic cults, alien abductions, you name it, somebody has probably said it. And of course there's still the possibility that the answer is, there is nothing unusual to see here. That all these cases aren't related at all, and that they're all just simple accidents, or people who got lost in the woods and died. Or maybe not. Maybe there are certain places left in the world where the normal rules don't apply. Places where legend and history intertwine, offering us some glimpse of a hidden truth. One such place just might be Northern California's Mount Shasta. A large mountain bursts up out of the lush green forest all around it unconnected to other mountains in the area. It's long been considered a magical place. Both charlatans and true believers alike each year make the pilgrimage out to the mountain to soak in the alleged mystical energies. Self-proclaimed spiritual guides offer high-priced vortex tours and spiritual attunement workshops in the shadow of the mountain. The Shasta, the Modoc, the Ajumawi, and the Wintu peoples all had legends about the mountain. In fact, the very same spirit gods, the Skell and the Lao, that were supposed to have made Crater Lake were also credited with creating Mount Shasta. Geologists will tell you that the mountain was actually formed from a volcano. At 14,179 feet, it is the second highest peak in the Cascades and the fifth highest in California. In 1899... A 19-year-old man named Frederick Spencer Oliver was allegedly overcome by a vision, during which he spent hours automatic writing a manuscript that would eventually be published as A Dweller of Two Planets. It was in this manuscript that Spencer claimed that survivors from the lost continent of Lemuria had taken up to living in the caves below Mount Shasta. The Lemurians were supposed to be a technologically advanced race of giants whose continent was destroyed, much like the legend of Atlantis. In subsequent years, other writers and spiritualists would take this idea and run with it. And ever since, stories have persisted that Mount Shasta hides a vast, technologically superior city beneath the earth. Legend has it that in 1904, a miner named J.C. Brown discovered a passage to this underground city. Brown claimed that he found a hidden doorway somewhere on the mountain, and that behind that doorway lie a path that sloped downward for nearly 11 miles. At the end of that path, he allegedly found vast gold, jewels, and strange artifacts, as well as a number of mummies, some of them as much as ten feet tall. 
Thirty years later, Brown recounted the story to a man named John C. Root, who organized a large exploration team to head to the mountain and look for the treasure. But so the story goes that on the day the team was supposed to leave, J.C. Brown vanished and was never seen again. Now, I'll be the first to admit that the story of J.C. Brown sounds pretty suspicious. And I'm not the first person to call into question whether Brown really existed at all. Some of the other strange stories surrounding Mount Shasta are a little harder to discount, though. On May 25, 1999, 69-year-old Carl Landers disappeared while climbing Mount Shasta with two friends. Despite his age, Carl was considered to be in excellent shape. He was a regular hiker, climber, and runner. For 30 years, he ran every morning and even completed the Boston Marathon in 5 hours and 30 minutes. He attempted to climb Mount Shasta the year before his disappearance, but failed to reach the summit. This time he returned, vowing to make it all the way. But right from the beginning, Carl claimed he wasn't feeling well. And on the morning of May 25th, he left camp with the intention of heading toward nearby Lake Helen. Only Carl never got there. When his two companions realized Carl was missing, a massive search and rescue operation was put into motion including a helicopter equipped with infrared cameras that should have detected Carl's body heat were he anywhere on the mountain. But no trace of Carl was ever discovered. No clothing, no backpack, not even a single footprint was ever found. Besides the disappearance of Carl Landers, Mount Shasta was also the site of one of the most bizarre stories to ever emerge from any of David Politis' books. In 2010, a family was camping near a creek that flowed near Mount Shasta when their three-year-old son vanished, seemingly, in an instant. The family searched desperately for their son, but couldn't find him anywhere. About five hours after the little boy went missing, rescuers found him lying in a thicket directly next to a trail the searchers had been using. The parents were overjoyed to see their son alive again. Yet about three weeks later, when he was back home safe and sound, the little boy was being watched by his grandmother when he told the woman something disturbing. He told her that he didn't like his other grandma. When she asked him what he meant, he told her that another grandma who looked just like her had grabbed him and took him to a scary cave filled with spiders. He said that the other grandma had her same hair, her face, even her feet. Down in the cave, there were piles of purses and guns. But the boy was so scared, he didn't touch anything. He said his other grandma climbed up a ladder and was briefly illuminated by a light that revealed her to be a robot. He said there were other robots there, too. The boy's other grandma ordered him to lie down so that she could examine his tummy. Then she tried to get him to poop on a sticky paper, but he couldn't go. The other grandma then told the little boy that he was from outer space and that they put him in his mother's tummy. Then she took him back to the river and told him to wait in the thicket until help arrived. The boy's grandmother was petrified by her grandson's story. She later said that she would have written the entire story off as part of a three-year-old's vivid imagination, were it not for an incident that occurred near the same area a year earlier. On that day, the woman was camping near Fowler's campground in McLeod, California. She claimed to have woken up one morning face down in the dirt, having been removed from both her tent and her sleeping bag. She felt around to the back of her head where a sharp pain turned out to be a puncture wound. For the rest of that day, she felt ill and strangely emotionless. 
She said she had been camping with a friend who slept in a separate camper, and he too woke up with a similar puncture wound. They both had only vague memories of the night before. The only thing the two of them could really remember was shining a flashlight on something in the woods. Something that stared back at them with bright, red eyes. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. The Missing 411 is a huge story, and I could have easily told many more stories of these sort of creepy disappearances. If you're interested in reading any of David Politis' books, you can order them off his Missing KM website. Also, if you like this episode and want to hear more, then drop me a line at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let me know if you'd like me to do more episodes on the subject. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. I also want to give a shout out to my latest Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to Hale, Victoria, and Curtis. I really appreciate everything all of you have done to help support the show. Just a reminder, patrons to the show get access to all sorts of rewards, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. Another way you can help us support the show is by writing a review and rating us on iTunes. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Every one of your ratings and reviews really helps us out in spreading the good word about the show. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.